0: All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome to the GT Power Hour. Welcome back, everybody, to our 26th episode. It's mid-October 2021, and the multi-trillion dollar infrastructure bills we discussed in depth last month remain just that, bills. But you know what we might have? A full FERC. Congrats to DC Public Service Commission Chairman, Willie Phillips, whose pending nomination was announced just after our last episode went out and whose confirmation hearing before the Senate Committee on Energy and Natural Resources occurred just before this episode was published. His addition would bring FERC to its full complement of five commissioners and officially give it a Democratic majority, making further FERC dockets becoming effective by operation of law simply because FERC failed to act on them in time, as occurred with PJM's moper filing and the Southeast Energy Exchange Market proposal earlier this month, hopefully unlikely. Without as context, we decided to focus this month on the industry regulator scene in this utility commissions and commissioners themed episode. I'm your host, Rory Sweeney, and with me as always is Glenn Thomas. Glenn, would you like to introduce our guest this month?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we we went way outside PJM's borders to get this one. And joining us this month is Paul Schalander. Paul is president of the National Association of Regulated Utility Commissioners and president of the Idaho Public Utilities Commission as well. Uh, Paul's been around the utility space for a long time. He served as a commissioner um, in the 1990s, the early 2000s, took a little bit of a break in the middle and ran a newly created state office in Idaho and then came back to the commission in 2011. So Paul has uh, served a, a bunch of capacities at NARUC, including the telecommunications committee where he was chair of that. Um, he has an amazing bio actually. I, you know, I'm always fascinated by commissioner's bios and uh, Paul started his career as a as a DJ, basically, and worked his way up through the state legislature uh, and then on to the commission and state government. And now, like I said, president of the National Association of Regulated Utilities Commissioners. So, Paul Schalander, welcome to the GT Power Hour. Hey, it's
2: great to be here. You almost said Ohio instead of Idaho. I appreciate that, and thanks for not saying Iowa. Because when I get that, all I think of is former commissioner Nick Wagner, and it just ticks me off to give him any credit for anything. Uh, hey, uh, that's fantastic news about Willie Phillips. Uh, you couldn't get a better guy stepping into that role. I think he's going uh, to be a he's going to be a major player from day one. Smart guy, and uh, doesn't even have to move. He gets to stay in D.C. And, and take right. over that. How cool is that?
0: How about that, right? That doesn't happen very often.
1: Yeah, I no, that, that was, was super good. great news hearing of Willie's, uh, Willie's nomination. And uh, yeah, he's, he's walking into a FERC with a bunch of issues, but he is literally the perfect guy for the job.
2: Absolutely. And it gives me, might give me one more chance to appoint another member of the board of directors before my term as president expires. And of course, it's all about the power. In, in That's my it. <laughs> one more chance to you know make somebody happy or miserable. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well well president schillander and i want to mention to uh, i mean everybody will see this later but you mentioned this uh before we got on the episode about the very intriguing spelling of your name i guess that's what scandinavian for everyone who, who is just listening the commissioner's name is spelled k-j-e-l-l-a-n-d-e-r but it's pronounced schillander
2: yeah it's uh it's swedish and I, I, there's a couple of stories behind it might as well tell them to you because we yeah, got an hour yeah, we got time. And I'm not going to help you on anything related to, to energy. So let's let's take care of the time with this. Um, it takes me about 20 minutes to say my name. But no, uh, yeah, the KJ makes an SH sound. And I always tell people that I was the uh, the kid in first grade that didn't get in trouble for writing KJIT on the chalkboard. Uh, my my <laughs> teacher, she she couldn't figure it out, which was great. But actually, there was an incident in the first grade uh, where my teacher, because I went by my nickname. It was Pete uh and uh she kept calling me paul and she mispronounced my last name you know like paul Kajelander well Kajelander, you know yeah, in the right. first grade i didn't hear my name so I, I didn't answer well she thought that i had some learning disabilities <laughs> so she called my parents in. and um let's just say after the first meeting you know she started calling me pete and i started responding so i felt good about that i didn't get held back in the first grade as a result of my name but i came close <laughs> really close <laughs> um, but the other thing too is like the last name it sounds authentically swedish and, and it is of Swedish origin, but the name itself is a made-up name. When my, when my great-grandfather and his brothers were getting ready to come over to the New World, because they heard there were jobs in, in Illinois, which is where they landed, there were, the, the jobs were in the Illinois militia to fight in the Civil War. Um, uh. I think we were the smartest group of people. Um, <laughs> but they were sitting around a table, and they were trying to come up with a name that would help them fit into the New World. And they consciously chose the name Shalander, spelled with a KJ, to help them fit into the new world. So we figured, yeah, we figured the name they gave up must have been a real winner. So we did some genealogical research, found out the name they gave up for Shalander was Johnson. Seriously.
0: (laughs) Seriously.
2: Uh, That is some very out of the box thinking,
1: I
0: think. So does Shalander
1: mean anything in Swedish? I mean, is there any story behind that? What we've heard. Now, I don't speak Swedish, and I don't eat
2: Swedish food, and I think anybody that's ever had it knows why. I mean, it's not tasty. Um, but when you, you look at the name, supposedly, the shell means good or great, and ander like uh, means from the land or farmer. So it means good farmer. They were coming over to start a grain storage business, and they were starting it in a Swedish community. So supposedly... That's there now. Somebody who speaks Swedish and knows the language is going to say that's just BS, and that could well be. But that's the story we're going with, and we're pretty proud of it. I love hey, it. That's take awesome.
0: It. My, my my last name tracks back to pig farmer, so you know I, I would take good farmer over that. So I, I think you're I think you're in good spot there. Pig farmer's great. Be proud.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> Our coat of arms actually has three hogs on it, so um, you know that they 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 are definitely proud of it. Um, okay. <laughs> Well, so now that we know more about you, many people don't know much about NARUC, much less what its president does. Tell us about your experience there so far. You know, what What are the biggest perks of the job and how much of a percentage of your time is spent on electricity issues that we are obviously pretty focused on here?
2: This year, if I were to put like a bumper sticker on my car to describe my my role as president of the association, it, it'd have to be all the work, none of the perks. Um, <laughs> COVID's uh, kind of turned things upside down. If you were to look at this in a normal uh, scenario, the, the role of neighborhood president, I, I would say, not exclusively, but largely was the role of being the ambassador, the face for the association. Um, there was a lot of opportunity to travel around. Uh, the country to a lot of the regional meetings, to a lot of other association meetings, representing um, Nehru positions, and uh, and basically giving sort of the same stump speech with a few variations over and over, um, and then getting to travel globally to to participate in some of the um, international uh, regulatory forums in Europe, uh, the Eastern Bloc uh, countries, and um, you know even in, in in the world level there was supposed to be a big event down in Peru, uh, but all that got canceled. And, um, the ambassador role has, has still been there from a virtual perspective. Uh, but as far as the activities, there's been a whole lot more because it's harder to say no, because you don't have all that travel in between. Right. So you could go back to back to back to back from one zoom meeting to the other. I, that's the only exercise I get. I call it Zumba uh, <laughs> know, the, the one to the next, but the, uh, the good thing about it though, too, is by not traveling and, and being a part of those, um, events, whether it's with uh, the Water Association or uh, Edison Electric Institute or, or, or this, is there's an opportunity really to, you know, be at your desk, get access to information and, and continue to be a lifelong learner as it relates to a lot of the innovative and disruptive technologies that are coming down the pike and giving us all um, more and more uh, opportunity to try and get it right as we move forward over the next decade. And so I think... Um, as I, as I look at the role of the president, it, it evolved because it had to evolve this, uh, this last go around. And we took advantage of that, at the executive committee. I worked very closely with uh, Judge Judy Ogman out of Virginia and, uh, and Commissioner Michael Karen, who is our current second vice president, because those two will follow me in succession uh, into the president's role. And what we wanted to do is change the dynamics a bit. In the, in the past, uh, each new president came in and they would have their own theme for that year. You now, one year it was the water energy nexus, another one had dealt with veterans, another person decided to come in, we're gonna focus on broadband this year. And, and while those were worthwhile topics, it was this one and done scenario. And then boom, we gotta shift gears and neighborhood staff has to shift gears and, and the whole focus shifts gears into a new direction. And now you're, you're off into uh, another area. And we decided that we wanted to change that dynamics and put together a multi-year theme. And so in working with both Michael and Judy, we came up with uh, a theme that we think actually could extend out well beyond um, their terms and into the next terms of people that haven't been uh, elected yet. And we call it um, Connecting the Dots, Innovative, Disruptive Technologies and Regulation. And what we're trying to do is create a broader umbrella in which all of the utility sectors that we have regulatory authority on can fit under. And since we know that these things are evolving and and so dynamic and changing rapidly, it gives us an opportunity to take a much deeper dive over a period of time and try and really focus uh, on the things that matter to our membership. And and that's been good. Another thing that we've we've done too, that, that I'm excited about, is again to focus on the membership. And and that's been important. Uh, Part of it too, uh, we got hit pretty hard like most associations did in the pandemic uh, as far as budget considerations. Um, One of the things that is is a reality for our national association is that our international program brings in a lot of revenue, but that revenue mostly you're able to draw from that and bring that into the fold by travel. And of course, international travel has been a no-go for, for the last two years, and that had a significant impact on our on our overall budget. So it, it forced us at the Executive Committee and the Board of Directors to really get in and understand our fiduciary responsibility and start to take that a little more seriously than we had previously. And, and I think that's been a good thing. So if I'm looking at positives out of this whole COVID scenario, as far as the National Association and our role over the last uh, year and a half, two years now, it's been... The opportunity for us to actually rethink what it means uh, as far as the association and its role in connecting to our members and in finding ways in which we can better serve them and that's been um, i think probably one of the best things that's uh, been a part of at least my role as president over the over the last year but um i'm i'm not going to feel too sad about handing over the reins to judy ogman in another month or so she's ready to go just had a call with her today and, um, you know, it's, it's nice to be on the same page with people who want to move in the same direction and have, uh, it's not about us, it's not about individuals, it's about the association. And I can say this without any hesitation, both Judy and Michael are of that same um, caliber of, of commissioner who really puts the association and its members ahead of themselves. And uh, I'm really excited for what they're going to do going forward.
1: Yeah, they'll do a great job picking up, uh, the mantle. That's for sure. And you said something that was really interesting about your role. You said you evolved because you had to evolve. And I think that probably could be said for pretty much every state utility commissioner during this crisis. I mean, I think when the history books are eventually written on this, one of the things that I think is going to be, you know, pretty amazing is just how the regulatory process really didn't miss a beat. I mean, there was, a couple, maybe weeks, even there. I wouldn't even say months, you know, where it took some time just to get things set up. But by and large, you know, you know, state commissions, FERC, the FCC was it was putting out orders, getting the business done, and, and and making the necessary decisions to make prevent this thing from even being worse. So, um, I think that's that's a great way of putting it. You evolved because you had to evolve. Well, there was a there was a song when I was a, a kid growing up. Uh,
2: from REO Speedwagon, and and the title of it was Roll With the Changes. And and that's that's exactly what we had to do, is roll with the changes. But everybody did, again, because you had to. And, you know, the first crisis that we all sort of ran into was this uh, moratorium on shutoffs and disconnections. And I know some states dealt with it differently than others, but I have to report back the utilities that that I have the great pleasure of of regulating. Uh, We've had reports back from them. We were the states that quickly evolved back into sort of a state of normalcy as it related to the moratorium on disconnects uh, a year ago last July. And what they're coming back and saying is that they don't have to have any additional recovery mechanisms put in place because what we'd already built into rates for um, uncollectibles was enough and satisfactory. So even the things that could have been disastrous as, as we tried to work through that it, and create some, some legitimate concerns for our utilities and, and for customers as well, we were able to avoid, again, because we were willing to be nimble. And, and I think mm-hmm. that's, uh, you know, you have to learn how to live with ambiguity. And the last couple of years has taught us all how to do that.
1: Yeah, for sure.
2: Yeah. Let me ask. I mean, so
0: how do you feel that the utilities have done during this? Bit? You mentioned the, the shutoff moratorium and all that. I mean,
2: Yeah, I I can only speak to the utilities that I have direct involvement with, but I have heard from others that are members of the Edison Electric Institute, and um, what I've been hearing is is very similar to what I've seen in my own backyard, and that is that the utilities were very, very prepared from the beginning to deal with uh, this type of crisis. Uh, They began working on uh, plans for this for, well, it's been over a decade ago. And then they were able to deploy it. And I say able as if they couldn't wait to deploy it. That's not the case, but they knew what to do. They knew how to ensure their operations stayed uh, on board. They knew what the protocol was going to be within their operating centers. And they, they, they implemented it. And I was very, very impressed with the uh, large major utilities and their ability to move forward. It made it easier for us to actually then recognize, okay, we don't have to worry about the utilities. Now we've got to focus on our own state operations, as far as the commission's concerned. How do we turn to this virtual environment? How do we sort of roll with the changes and figure this out? And it really did become more of a, a partnership of sorts in trying to recognize that, hey, we want to be of value. We don't want to be in the way. But what are you doing? What's happening? So when we get calls from the governor's office and we see these things going on, we hear from consumers and customers about outages, we can, we can tell them up front: look, they're working on it, it's happening, everything's going well. Because our biggest concern was that, one, we're gonna have to deal with the pandemic, utilities gonna have to deal with the, the pandemic, and then we're gonna have some other crisis pop up along with it. And lo and behold, we did. In, in my neck of the woods, within a month or so of the pandemic hitting in, when I was still in quarantine at, at home, I'm sitting with my wife uh, downstairs and the house starts shaking. Well, I just thought it was a big semi-truck going in, in the road behind us. You know, the problem with that is uh, the road behind us never has a semi-truck on it. We were having an earthquake and it's like, whoa. And so the, the question then popped in my mind, okay, here's here's that other event. And then within another month later, in come the wildfires again, which are very common in, in, in the West. So on top of the covid We still had the utilities dealing with other crises simultaneously and they were able to do it. And and I was very, very impressed with their ability uh, to be very resilient and move forward and and keep the the lights on. And and, and that to me uh, spoke very, very highly of the utilities. So uh, I have nothing but uh, compliments for the way in which they move forward uh, in in that approach. And again, I, I can't tell you what it was like nationwide, but the reports I've been hearing back from other commissioners have been very, very similar that the response that the utilities have had through this has been extraordinary. And uh, they've been uh, tremendous in their ability to, to do their jobs and keep the lights on. And in many respects, make it easier for me as a regulator to do my job.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and speaking of crisis, you know, moving on to the next crisis, I mean, maybe to bring it to the events we're dealing with today. I mean, it seems like the two issues that are getting headlines these days that could could impact utilities as inflation and supply chain issues. Are you, are you hearing any rumblings about uh, any of those issues right now? I haven't uh, in, in terms of the, again, the utilities
2: that, that I regulate directly, but you know, from a supply chain issue, we all know if we've been trying to order anything off Amazon or, or or even buy something at the grocery store, it's, it's legit, it's real. And so I know that those are impacting the utilities. It hasn't impacted them to the extent that it's causing a problem for us yet. It doesn't mean it won't, but uh, so far they seem to be managing through it. And, and that's a plus. But again, one major crisis that takes out uh, your distribution system in, in, a, in a sector of, of uh, your service territory, we could find other problems that, that could emerge. And, and again, If if we do find ourselves in that situation, we have to be pragmatic in our approach as regulators and and recognize that. And a lot of uh, dealing through that's gonna be communication with customers so that they understand what's going on and why. And I think that's something that the utilities are getting better at, which is uh, I think a tremendous plus for them going forward.
1: Okay, Uh, why don't we transition a little, Paul, to some other topics. Um, So you're on your second stint at the PUC. Um, and you had been uh, obviously on the PUC in the 90s, like I said, the early 2000s. And then you stepped in to run the Office of Energy and Minerable Resources in 2007, which was a newly created office. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what was your focus there? Sure. Uh,
2: my focus where I went there was to establish and create a cabinet level position in an office of, of energy resources. And I inherited a division that was embedded within... It was embedded in in another state agency, and so I had to pull that out. They were receiving some federal grant dollars, and and change its mindset, and and we did that. It was uh, it was a worthwhile venture. It became more of a policy directed uh, office at that point, which was uh, a, a tough transition for some, but it, it needed to happen. And then, just when I was about ready to say, "Okay, I've done it. It's uh, it's time to move on." the uh, great recession hit and moving on to anywhere would have been a challenge. So I said, well, let's stay put. And I'm glad I did because then the stimulus money came in and my budget went from 1 million to $45 million overnight. And I had never spent $45 million before. And I thought, well, that might be fun. Now, surprise! You had a lot of friends pretty fast, I'll bet. Oh, yeah. Everybody had a little black. <laughs> perpetual motion and oh you got to see this it's like yeah don't bring that in here because I'm sure there's something wrong with it (laughs) but yeah everybody had their hand out but uh, I had a governor that was extremely supportive uh, a guy named Butch Otter who was just a super dude and you know I I still stay in touch with him but I went to him and said look there's a lot of ways we can work this I can I can put together some huge Behemoth group of people to come in, and we can have some big group sessions, and we can we can talk about a, a lot of different ways in which we can we can put this money out there out there, or you can let me lock myself in a room for the next two weeks, and I'll come up with plans on if this were my money, how I'd spend it, so that you know I get the biggest bang for the buck. And he said, I like that. Why don't you go do that, and awesome. uh, and 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 give it a whirl. And he said, but here's the deal: if it fails. It's on you I like, uh-huh. okay thanks. I appreciate it, so I went out, put it together, presented it to him a huge piece of it was on energy efficiency. We had so many schools in the in the state that had not done any kind of HVAC uh, updates over the years, you know no improved lighting, no insulation I mean there was so much low hanging fruit that it was a Huge area in which we could make some immediate impact, and if it was my own money, the return on that investment would have been a, a three to four year window. So, and when we actually went out to implement some of these programs, the return on investment, some of it was less than eight eight months wow. in terms of the the benefit that that brought back into those school districts. So, we were able to launch a program there that I thought was extremely important and significant. There were a lot of other pieces parts to it all but it was a good chance to really work with some very, very smart people uh, and to, to implement some programs that still are, are showing benefits today. And we got to launch the program at this little school in Homedale, Idaho, that had a bronze plaque on it. It was built during the Great Depression with money from the Great Depression. And we were able, that, and that building is still operating. We were able to go in there and start with that school to launch this program using new stimulus money to, to update its HVAC system and to basically bring it into you know this next generation of, of energy efficient buildings. And while it's not an Energy Star building, they certainly did benefit tremendously from, from this program. And, uh, and I think they're still seeing some benefits from the money that was spent uh, over a decade ago. So, you know, I, I was proud of what we did and I was proud of the people that I got a chance to work with. The other Big window that opened up through that though was we have a, a national lab in Idaho. It's the only national lab in the country that's actually named after the state. It's the Iowa National Lab. I'm kidding. It's Idaho. <laughs> the <laughs> Idaho National Lab, and I got plugged into them on day one, and I got to work with some of the smartest people that uh, that I'd ever encountered uh, around the energy sector, and still stay in touch with them today, and. They gave me an extraordinary uh, educational background and support on everything from nuclear to battery storage to renewables and how all those would uh, would play a role in in the future. And and I have to say that from that experience, I've been able to carry that into my role now as I returned to the commission almost 10 years ago now and still stay in touch with those folks because it is a tremendous resource and another phrase they taught me, which uh, you know I still live with today and really enjoy and hope I can find more people like this, is they saw themselves as honest brokers, not people that were advocates for one thing or another, but honest brokers. And and I really do believe that, that they were the ones I worked with. And that was one of the best experiences that, that I had coming out of uh, the creation of the Office of Energy Resources. And, and again, I still stay in touch with a lot of those people there intelligent, And when people talk about money from uh, the feds, DOE and, and others going to the labs, I'm saying send them more. Mm. Uh, the things that they're working on, the work that they're doing is, is really going to help us get a better handle on uh, an honest broker approach to what some of those next steps might be. Well, let,
0: uh, on that topic, let, let's let's talk about what the power generation landscape looks like in Idaho. Uh, uh, are, is there anything in particular that's going on there? Or are you guys interested in joining an RTO, ISO at some point?
2: Well, you know, we have been looking at RTOs and ISOs as a uh, opportunity for probably before I became a commissioner in 99. In fact, we've had so many fits and starts at looking at RTOs and ISOs that all the good names for an RTO or ISO have already been used up. Uh, <laughs> but. But we are looking at uh, the energy imbalance market, and most of the major utilities in the region have already taken this step into that. So it's sort of the camel's nose under the tent into the energy imbalance markets. Now they're looking at a day-ahead market. They're calling that EDAM. uh, And uh, isn't it fun, all the acronyms you get? (laughs) Oh yeah, Uh, (laughs) yeah.
1: it only gets worse, trust me.
2: Exactly, so it's it's an advanced uh, day-ahead market, and, That is, you know, we're taking some baby steps with that. There was a lot of uh, interest in trying to join the CAISO. The problem that we have with the CAISO isn't, you know, that it's an ISO or an RTO. It's the governance issue. In, In the CAISO, the governor of the state of California gets to appoint all of the board of directors for the ISO. And regionally, that doesn't really sit well with other states.
1: Yeah, so that,
2: that governance piece has to change in order for the CAISO to be that vehicle. But that hasn't stopped the, uh, the major utilities and, and other stakeholders from looking into the creation of an ISO or an RTO. I think the energy imbalance market and the work on the advanced day ahead market or enhanced day ahead market is helping utilities and others see a path. Now, what that looks like, they're still going to have to come up with the appropriate value propositions because they're going to have to get the the buy-in from regulators at the end of the day. But uh, work continues there, and we'll see what happens. But again, it's all going to depend on the value proposition. Uh, just just saying, oh, an RTO is a great thing, and, and ISO is wonderful. No, no, the value proposition has to has to be there, and mm-hmm. to the extent they can they can make that happen and, and present that, then then it has a a reasonable shot. So we'll see what happens.
1: I mean, I was looking at the EIM website earlier today. I mean, it looks like the utilities are actually posting on it's either a quarterly or an annual basis, the value that they are achieving from the imbalance market. I mean, I assume that's part of the, uh, the sales effort here, if you will. It, it has been. And I think that's a tremendous op- observation because from
2: the very beginning, that's where we've been. But these are great things. And why isn't an energy imbalance market a good place to start? Well, you're not transferring any assets. And if right. it falls apart, it's easy to get out of. Uh, whereas if you create a brand new RTO, ISO, you're going to have stranded costs if it's not working and you have to, you have to break it out
1: mm-hmm. because there's
2: going to be cost to create it. But at the end of the day, too, it is that value proposition. So if they know what it is with the energy imbalance market, it's going to make it much easier for them to calculate or project something that might be reasonable as far as a value proposition going forward if they take that next step. So it it, uh, it can build off of each uh, of each step, and so we're we're excited to see where it goes. But again, it's like anything you're you're cautiously optimistic. You got to keep your powder dry. You don't know what you're going to see, but there's a, a lot of work on it, and uh, we'll see what kind of new and exciting name they can come up with. <laughs>
0: Those are always the best. Seam, seam in the
1: south. Yeah, I like I'd that be, one. Be, but if you think about it, what's happening in this country? I mean, you know, we had sort of the northeast and the Midwest that that that, that went big early on on the RTO idea, where the you know the South and the West were a little bit more of the go, go go slow approach. But it seems, I mean, certainly. You know, the Southeast has taken incremental steps towards recognizing the value of integrated grids in the region. You know, the West is making that movement. It's just a question of of pace, I think, uh, and, and as, as the commissioner pointed out here. So uh, we'll see. I mean, it's but I think the overall proposition that there is, like I said, value to these integrated grids is, is becoming more manifest on a regular basis. And, well, it is and, challenging. I'm not going to lie. I mean, it's very challenging, certainly in PJM.
2: Well, it, it is challenging.
1: And, and to, to that point, though,
2: too, I mean, we, we've been we've we've had wholesale markets in, in the West for decades. So, so right. that's not a new thing. I think probably one of the harder things to try to get that value proposition for is a lot of the states we're looking at are low cost states because of the uh, the heavy hydro influence in Washington, right. Oregon, Idaho. So it becomes a little you're a little more protective of, uh, of, of your rate structures and, yeah. and because you, the cost per kilowatt hour is relatively cheap and has remained relatively cheap through the years, even with a lot of new resources having to come on board to serve growing load. But it's, um, everybody wants to find a way to serve their customers better, to be more efficient, and to take advantage of the benefits of having a much larger footprint than an ISO RTO could provide. We, we all understand the potential benefit there. It's just how do we actualize that? How do we find that value proposition? And then how do we move forward in a way in which governance isn't an impediment? And I think if we can identify those as the core issues, which they have and begin to take those appropriate steps forward, we'll, we
1: could get there. But we don't want to be forced to go there. Yeah, it's at your own pace. And, well, the T in RTO stands for transmission, so let's maybe talk a little bit about transmission. Um, And we had Commissioner Clements on the podcast a few months ago, had a terrific conversation with her, and she has high hopes for this FERC-NARUC collaborative on transmission, and we're going to see a meeting of that coming up here in Louisville in a few weeks. Um, Talk to us about your thoughts on this, uh, you know, maybe talk to us about your thoughts on transmission in general, and then maybe specifically on your hopes for this NARUC-FERC collaborative. Uh, that we're going to get kicked off here.
2: Well, I'll start with the FERC-NARUK collaborative. Uh, We began as soon as uh, Commissioner Glick became the chair of FERC. I had just become the president of NARUK. We set up one-on-ones with all of the FERC commissioners over a period of about three, four weeks, and we started with uh, Commissioner Glick and had a conversation about cooperative federalism, which I'm sure is not the driest topic you've ever heard, but probably pretty close to it. But when we look at that whole concept, our relationship with federal regulators wasn't terrible, but it certainly could have been a lot better. And we both kind of sat back and said, what can we do to to improve this relationship? And through those conversations with uh, Chair Glick and, and the other commissioners, we started looking at the possibility of creating either a, a joint board uh, to look at transmission or a, um, a joint conference, and what we ultimately settled on was a task force to try and figure out a way in which we could get federal and state regulators in a room, uh, regionally balanced, and have legitimate conversations about the need for transmission, how to deal with the um, a multitude of different facets of of getting transmission built, but I think more importantly too is to maybe help inform FERC, at least make them aware of the concerns of states before a noper ever gets on the street, to maybe help fine-tune some of those issues so that as that moves forward, we're getting the right people at the table, and also to make sure that states aren't an oversight in, in that role so that NARUC is, is not an oversight as it relates to a future technical hearing, and neither are state regulators. And also from another perspective, as far as the National Association, is that we've got a core group of people who care deeply about uh, the energy sector and transmission specifically, who are also on some of our main committees at our National Association, where resolutions, which become our policy statements, can, we can get a head start on trying to move the things forward so that when we do file comments at FERC, We actually have some meat on the bones as far as our resolutions, which are our policy statements, so that we're not just saying the same thing over and over again. Oh, protect states' rights. Well, okay, that only goes so far. What is it we want to protect? What is our general position as as state regulators as it relates to this specific topic? And that's what I'm hopeful for, is that this dialogue will give us enough of a heads up so that we can be more prepared to be better Participants in future technical hearings and in comments that are filed on Nopers that it impact us directly. So that's my hope. As far as transmission as a whole, um, I know there are a lot of people who will sit back and, and say that the future is uh, generation on the edges of the distribution system, and somehow we're all going to be moving away from central plant. Uh, I'm, I, I haven't drank that Kool Aid. I don't believe that's the case, and I think central plant. I don't know what it will look like, whether it will be nuclear, maybe someday it'll be hydrogen, uh, maybe it'll be a combination solar battery, wind battery. Uh, and maybe there'll be some, some, some clean uh, technology that'll, that'll shore up some of the uh, carbon-laden resources we have in the mix today uh, and make those viable uh, candidates for, for new generation projects. But at the end of the day, I, I think central plants still gonna exist and we're going to have to be able to move that power to markets. Because if it's wind, it is where it is. And solar, you can only build it in so many places. And nuclear, uh, there's a lot of wonderful opportunities. Uh, the cold and nuclear transition, that a lot of people are talking about, could be wonderful, but it's going to be further away from, uh, from the actual load that it's going to serve. And so you're going to have to have high capacity transmissions. We have to figure out how that works. And high capacity transmission, the, the barriers to getting it built. It's not the same. It's not one size fits all. The, the issues that people are confronted with the East in terms of getting transmission sited are not the same issues that we have in the West. That's right. Uh, our, big, our biggest problem in the West is access to federal land. It takes hmm. 10 to 12 years to get through the uh, environmental impact statement process to get uh, transmission sited on federal land. Because when you're looking at an interstate uh, project, you could be looking at how many different uh, Forest Service uh, districts that, that you all have to deal with then you're going to have to deal with the bureau of land management you, you've got it's i've gone through that that was one of the the projects i had to work on it when i was at the office of energy resources and it's uh it's a nightmare trying to work through the federal process we were on the fast track with a project called gateway west it started in about 2006 2007. it was put on the fast track in the obama administration It didn't get fully cited on federal land until about 2018, 2019. Hmm. Now, you can imagine that if you were a utility that was counting on that transmission line to help you serve future load growth, that you already built different generation resources and found other ways to serve that growing load because you couldn't wait anymore. So when you finally do get it cited, what happens? Do you break ground that day? No, you've already had to make other plans. Now we still have those uh, those paths cited, and we're seeing some construction of those of those lines. I hope to see more, but we've got to figure out a way in which to legitimately, without trampling on everybody's rights, get transmission cited in a meaningful way that isn't some one size fits all force it down somebody's throat scenario.
0: Yeah, you're, I th- you're sort of foreshadowing this question uh, here, uh, but I want to ask it more directly. Do you expect that there will be, do you envision regional divides
2: on, on uh, what this task force comes up with? I, I wouldn't say divides, but I would say that there's an opportunity for some legitimate conversations that could lead to some better understanding. Mm-hmm. I think every potential schism is an opportunity to build a bridge. And I think that we may see some opportunities there that we don't see today. I don't see it as an East West Midwest thing. I see it as we we recognize we need to get transmission built. How do we get it done? What's the best way? And and I know out west we're not we are very very good at the sport of Fed bashing. It is it's a (laughs) it's a it's a national sport for us out here in the west. And uh, so. I don't um, think
0: that's much uh, different from the East either. Right?
2: <laughs> it's just different, different weapons. <laughs> yeah, different weapons, absolutely. Uh, so the, the the point behind that is, you know, we don't want to be forced into something, but we recognize that we will have to build things. And uh, so again, it's, uh, I don't see this as being a conflict ridden opportunity. I see it more as an opportunity to hear each other out and to figure out what those paths forward are. Because, again, it's not a one-size-fits-all. It's just not. And, and we, we, we've got to get away from thinking, well, it's the United States of America. Here's, here's our plan. It's like, no. It's, it's, it's very, the issues that people have with offshore wind and what they have to do to bring that to market are very, very different than the issues that we will be dealing with in the West. And the types of land and property that you have to go across are going to be very different. In, in each segment of, of the country, and we have to recognize that, that there are different barriers to building transmission, and so I see this as, uh, as, a, as a great forum to begin to expose more of that and learn more about it and hopefully find some reasonable paths forward or at least identify the right questions to be asked.
0: It, it sounds like we can find some common ground on, on bashing the federal government, so uh, that's a
1: good place to start. Go ahead, Glenn. Yeah, no, I think it should be a fascinating conversation. And like I said, we're gonna, you know, it's gonna the first con- is is the first meeting of this group at the Nehru meeting, Paul. It is, which is one more reason
2: for for you <laughs> and all your listeners to <laughs> to find a way to get to Kentucky, yeah, and 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 come on out and be a part of it all and and uh, sit in the crowd and when they have the public comment period, get up and 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 join in.
1: Terrific! Yeah, are there any anything else in that meeting you want to highlight? Why else should people come to Kentucky other than the great bourbon? I well, I was
2: gonna like emphasize <laughs> the great bourbon, and I mean, it's you know, it's, it's a rain makes corn, corn makes whiskey, and in Kentucky that whiskey is bourbon. So uh, there could easily be a bourbon tour in there. And there's some great music down there, some excellent musicians. In fact, when I saw you earlier, I know that the listeners can't see it. But Rory looks a lot like a Kentucky-based singer, a guy named Tyler Childers. So if you don't know who he is, look him up, because it looks a lot like Rory. If it's separated <laughs> at birth is, is where I'm going with it. But, but beautiful music. Uh, I think you'll love it. Uh, but the uh, the sessions that we're going to have, I, I'm excited about. Uh, we've got one on coal to nuclear, which uh, is, hmm. is a venture that uh, Pacificor is working on with uh, a division of Microsoft to start looking at some of the coal-fired generation sites in the state of Wyoming to figure out which ones might be uh, reasonable to try and site some next generation nuclear at so that they can take advantage of existing workforce, the site itself, and the transmission that's already there with those coal-fired generators that so would don't end up a stranded investment of that uh, transmission line when those coal-fired generators phase out. So I think there's a lot of interest and excitement there, and uh, and the potential to look more at the art of the possible, which is uh, I think one more reason to attend that conference in Kentucky.
0: You sort of mentioned this in your in your invitation for everyone to come in during the public uh, period there. But again, another more uh, explicit question, I suppose, is you know if you for stakeholders who aren't. Um, directly regulated by the state commissions uh, and don't have those consistent lines of communication what is the best way from your perspective as a commissioner for them to engage with you explain their positions and, and sort of get action done on the issues
2: that they're that they're very focused on well one thing if you if you attend association meetings you can always um, meet with commissioners they're usually pretty good about having conversations making sure though that they're not Uh, trampling on any kind of ex parte communication on open dockets that that are before them. The other piece, though, is uh, quite honestly, commissioners in terms of issuing orders, and and I view this, I'm an economic regulator, I'm not a policy setter in in that sense, and I can only make a decision based on the record in front of me. So if it's not in the record, it's never going to find its way into an ultimate order or decision that we issue. Because that would be arbitrary and capricious. And I'll get overturned in our state Supreme Court. And most states run into similar scenarios uh, almost overnight. So, you know, again, you, you have to be engaged in some sense. I'm not inviting everybody to be an intervener in, in specific cases, <laughs> but if, because that could be pretty unwieldy. Uh, I just heard from a colleague, I think they mentioned, and it almost shocked me over 40 interveners in a recent rape case. I'm okay. like, well, how do you manage that? And uh, it just becomes, uh, it almost dies in its own weight, and and your comments could easily be lost in in, in that kind of mixture. Yeah. But the, the key point is to, to pick and choose the areas that make the most sense to you, and to the extent that there is another group that's a part of that, that you may want to look at uh, you know, piling in as a as a as a intervener with somebody else who's already engaged in that process if they're dealing with similar issues. But another piece, though, too, I think, is through. Again, the, the National Association meetings that we have, the regulators aren't the scary people we try to make everybody think we are. Uh, we actually wake up every day and, and do many of the same things that most other people do. And as a result too, we're accessible, but we have to be cautious about whether or not it's an open docket, whether or not it's something that's in front of us. And we're probably very cautious too about what we would be willing to say about specific issues because we don't want to have that come back to bite us later and say well he said at this meeting that he was all about renewables and then the next thing you know somebody's wanting you to recuse yourself on some case because that quote popped up yeah. and 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 now you you've become damaged goods as it relates to that specific mm-hmm. docket so we we do have to be cautious in, in that sense but we uh, we also we want to learn as well we don't you don't walk into these jobs as a newly minted commissioner and have a clue about what's going on. I don't care where you've been in the industry. Um, there's a huge learning curve, not just process, but also you know now that you got to sign these orders and and your name's on it. It's it's a different landscape. You know you really want to understand this before you go out there and and sign your name to something that could find you landing in court uh, on a direct appeal. So we need to learn and these. These panels that we have that have a broad mix of people that that are a part of them, give us an opportunity to listen, ask some questions and and not be in a scenario where we are put into uh, the position that we may have to recuse ourselves down the road because we were out there blathering about things we didn't understand. So that's, again, I think where the value of attending uh, these meetings coming up, like our, our National Association meeting in November in Louisville. Uh, for, for people who want to get access to commissioners and have legitimate dialogue and conversations to to begin to develop those, but it's about relationships uh, overall, which you could say about everything in, in this world, whatever profession it is, it's about relationships, and you don't develop those by throwing a rock through somebody's window and then expecting them to invite you in to dinner. That's not sure. how it works.
0: Sure. Yeah, put a pin in that because I have some comments uh, on that topic I won't, in a later section. But now it is time for rapid fire. And I think everyone understands how this goes. Commissioner, just give us the first thing that comes to mind. Idaho is called the gem state. Any idea why?
2: We have a lot of gems. Okay. Including the star garnet. Oh,
0: I'll have to, that's another one we'll Google. Uh, Google.
2: What's up with the blue football field at Boise State? Smurf turf. Okay. The, uh, the president of the university that hired me 34 years ago, the year before he put that down so that he could be on the front cover of Sports Illustrated, he ah. said, if we build it, they will come. And he built an athletic program that now has made what was once a junior college in the 1970s, the largest single enrollment university in the state of Idaho, ah. and Blue turf helped do it.
1: That's, that's very ah, so it was a marketing boy. I didn't realize that. was so cool. Yeah.
2: yeah.
0: Well, aside from potatoes, the Bluefield and the Statue of Liberty play that Boise State used to beat Oklahoma in the Fiesta Bowl, I believe that was what, 2007? What else
2: should the rest of the country associate with Idaho? One of Idaho's newest attorneys, Allison Schalander. Uh, okay. That's what they should have associate Okay. <laughs> <All right. laughs>
0: yeah. Nice little plug there. Okay. Uh, you once said that you got appointed, not because you knew a lot about utilities, but because you knew the governor in that case, who'd you know to become neighbor president?
2: Everybody that had a vote.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Just campaigning up and down the docket there. Um, okay. The last two neighbor presidents from the Western conference were Phil Jones and Travis Kavula. Lots of brain Bauer there in if the three of you played against each other in Jeopardy, who would win, and who would bet it all in Final Jeopardy?
2: Uh, Travis would win, but I would bet it all. <laughs>
1: you would have uh, money to bet, Paul. That assumes you have some money to bet, right?
2: I, I don't know that I would have any money to bet, but <laughs> but hey, now Travis is a smart guy, but he can, there's a hiccup there. Um, and, and I caught him on that. Now, now, again, he's a smart guy, but he just had a new, a new kid, a, a baby. And, uh, you know, he, he named his child Julius, but his child was born in August. So it should have been Augustus. Augusta, Augusta. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I caught him on that because I you know that whole calendar thing, there were only like 10 months. And then because uh, you had Julius and Augustus Caesar, the Romans said, okay, let's just create two new months. Which is why October, which means the eighth month, is actually now the tenth month. Well, I think Travis should have known that and should have named his kid Augustus and not Julius. So maybe I might have some money in the final <laughs> round to be all in if they raise that question.
0: Yeah, if if one of the categories is uh, ancient calendars or something like that. Oh yeah, I know. Yeah, on that. yeah. So that's, that's a very esoteric <laughs> hope. Uh, yeah. <laughs> all right. Um, who do, whom do you consider your
2: mentor or role model in this business? Um, I would say Marcia Smith probably was one of my mentors and, and role models. She was a commissioner at the Idaho commission. When I came in, one of the longest serving commissioners the States had. So Marsha, um, and a guy from the lab that uh, is still a good friend. Uh, Dr. Steve Allmire ha- has been one who I've always gone back to the well and tried to tap his brain, smart guy. Um, there's a lot of people that uh, have helped me out you've met me so you know I need a lot of help so (laughs) it's uh but those are two two names that come to mind
0: what advice do you give to younger or you know recently incoming commissioners
2: take every opportunity you can to keep your mouth shut and listen and learn
0: Sounds great. Okay, it's time now for the section of the show where we offer unsolicited advice to people whom we think need it. You have two minutes to level one-on-one with anyone anywhere on anything you think he or she needs to hear. Commissioner, who are you
2: going with and what are you saying? I'm going with the neighbor who doesn't know how to clean up after his dog when he messes (laughs) in my yard. That's the dude I want to point the finger at right now. First, smearing that stuff around in my grass is not picking it up. That's that's one thing you need to know. And two, two, I think he's probably still the same guy that actually when he does pick it up, wraps it up and leaves it on the sidewalk. That Please, is not uh, picking up after your dog. Uh, that is, that's not a good dog owner. Don't like that guy. So my advice is, if you don't know how to walk your dog and clean up act, after it,
1: get a cat. Uh, get <laughs> a cat.
0: Yeah, yeah. Or something even smaller. Uh, pet owners who... <laughs> get the wrong pet. I agree with you completely. Years ago, there was a fairly famous situation when the 101 Dalmatians was redistributed to theaters. There was this run on Dalmatians. And then like six months later, there was this massive uh, uh, amount of Dalmatians in shelters because people didn't realize that Dalmatians are actually really high energy. And like most people don't want to deal with all of them. So yeah, do some homework before you you get a pet. I think that's a, that's great advice. Glenn, what do you got this month?
1: All right. Well, I'm, I'm going to stick in the energy space this, okay. this month, and my advice this month is to Willie Phillips, who we talked about at the beginning of the show. Willie, of course, is President Biden's nominee to the FERC to replace uh, Commissioner Chatterjee, who's a friend of the podcast, and we've had on a couple times. So, Willie, you're a smart guy. You know your stuff. You know how to work with others, and you walk into a very tough situation where your voice is going to be incredibly important right now. It's no secret that there's a divided commission on many important issues. We talked about a couple earlier, but uh, we've seen some two-two splits at the commission on some very important policymaker matters. And we've seen some uh, very significant changes made by operational law without any commission order. And, of course, I'm talking about the MOPER order and PJM. I'm also talking about the Southeast Energy Exchange Market proposal. Um, these are very consequential consequential issues. And the lack of the FERC order on both should be troubling to to most. Um, And I look around PJM and I see a fair amount of stress these days on some pretty, again, important issues. Uh, We have market power rules that are in effect that were never endorsed by commission action. We've seen significant changes to the market seller offer cap that are creating all sorts of problems in PJM. And PJM has acknowledged and questions about whether PJM will have an operating reserve curve linger since the commission voluntarily remanded that order from the DC circuit. There's a lot of very challenging and vexing issues specific to PJM. Commissioner Phillips, there will be a lot of pressure on you to make very big decisions very early in your tenure. My advice to you is stay true to who you are. You have always believed in reliability. You've always understood the impact of consumers paying the bills. You've always understood that markets have values to these consumers. And you have always cared about the environment. But most importantly, you've always understood how to balance all these objectives. So Commissioner Phillips, soon to be for Commissioner Phillips, if you're listening, keep that perspective, keep that balance and don't regulate yourself to being the third vote for someone else's agenda. And that's my two minutes of advice this month, Rory. Very nice. And for my two minutes, you know, I've been mulling this one for a while.
0: I'd like to address the stakeholders involved in revising PJM's interconnection queue processes. And if I have to pick a particular individual, because that's the stick of our show here, Jason Connell, PJM's Director of Infrastructure Planning. Jason has a tough job, and the road ahead is looking rougher and rougher every day. At, le- at a recent meeting on revising the interconnection queue, staff confirmed that there's a backlog of more than 1,200 generation development projects seeking to interconnect to PJM's grid that are in various stages of analysis and cost allocation for any necessary system upgrades they'll create. Under the current interconnection process, staff estimated they're unlikely to clear that backlog before 2026. And that's assuming they don't accept another interconnection request between now and then. Several proposals are under consideration to transition to a process that would cluster analyses and cost allocations in a more efficient way. And the current disputes focus on the cutoff line between the requests that get to stay in the current process that they were crafted to take advantage of, and the ones that will be subjected to the unknowns of whatever the new process becomes. My advice to all stakeholders involved, and to Jason in particular, since he'll have to implement whatever is eventually agreed upon, is to build consensus. Obvious, right? I mean, PJM's stakeholder process is literally called the Consensus-Based Issue Resolution Process, or CBIR, but there doesn't seem to be a lot of that happening right now. PJM has offered a variety of options that I've been told at least Some developers see as only focused on PJM's needs. Additionally, developers have offered at least four other alternatives that cater to their own preferences. It's clear that whatever gets implemented won't please everyone and very likely will make a substantial amount of stakeholders unhappy. But this is supposed to be a long-term solution that solves the backlog issues permanently and ensures electric utilities continue to provide societal level benefits. So if you ask me, the best path to success is for everyone to compartmentalize their personal interests and instead consider what's the best for the grid as a whole over the long haul. Of course, individual business interests are important, but everyone's biggest interest should be making sure the industry continues to thrive. And that's my two minutes. Anyway, guys, it has been a, another fine hour in the bag here, uh, more or less. Any final
2: thoughts? Just that uh, your closing two minutes were very, very thoughtful compared to mine about dog poo. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? Usually, usually
0: I, I, I yell about traffic in, uh, in Philadelphia. So, you know, I thought I would
2: step it up a little bit this time. Yeah. Well, thanks for bringing your A game.
0: I appreciate that. Well, like I said, like I said earlier, you know, you, you, you teed it up actually when you were talking about, uh, co- uh, you know, a collaboration and, and getting it all together. And I said, put a pin in that because, uh, I'll come back to it.
2: Cool. Thanks for doing that. I appreciate that.
0: Glenn, anything
1: for you? Uh, no, I got to run. My dog's making a mess out of my neighbor's yard. So I'm
2: gonna, <laughs> gonna, I got
0: to up. <laughs> yeah. That's good. Well, thank you again, Commissioner, for being here with us uh, and spending all this time and kind of telling us uh, where where things are going. Thank you again to the audience for listening. And until next time, and as always, be excellent to each other. Bye, everybody. Thanks again for joining us for another episode of the GT Power Hour. The views expressed on the show represent those of the hosts, and not necessarily any GT Power Group client. For more information, please visit www.gtpowergroup.com. That's G-T-P-O-W-E-R-G-R-O-U-P.com. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.